This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Election day has turned into election days, and now with recounts and lawsuits may turn into election weeks, months. At what point does that 70s song by Ace, How Long Has This Been Going On, become the official theme song of the 2020 vote count? Joshua Geltzer is the founding executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, as well as visiting professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. He's been a legal advisor to the National Security Council and law clerk for both the Supreme Court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And Josh, just from the small parts of your background I just shared with people, I think listeners get that we're talking about the legal process that may stretch out before us here and stretches the word, isn't it? It certainly could. We're seeing litigation uh, be initiated, in particular by the the Trump campaign. It's not clear uh, how solid any of those claims are at that point, but that doesn't mean uh, that they'll disappear instantly. Courts may need to sift through them. And beyond the litigation, there is a legal architecture to this process that uh, picks up in December, December 8, safe harbor deadline. That's when Congress wants states, if possible, to resolve election disputes by December 14, the meeting of the Electoral College and really big January 6 joint session of Congress to resolve any election disputes that persist to that date. Well, speaking of those dates, just using, say, Wisconsin as an example of what can happen in, in a recount, without going into every detail, that, that could take up the entire segment, and that's just for one state, the quite legal court appeals could quite easily go on past the date electors are supposed to meet and choose the president. So what happens then? So it's possible, given the, the timing for court decisions and the timing for appeals, that you could see uh, a recount still in process or at least the final stages of disputes or litigation about uh, a recount still in process past that December 14 deadline. That's when the electors meet in in the several states uh, to effectively constitute the the electoral college's gathering. At that point, it seems to me, uh, it's still clear where the state is, even if there's a recount that's going on to, in essence, confirm that result. And remember, just as Wisconsin's own former Republican Governor Scott Walker indicated, recounts generally change things at most by hundreds of votes. And the difference here appears to be 20,000 votes. So the idea that we wouldn't have a, a result that's clear 
that doesn't really seem to be the case. So it seems to me the governor would go ahead and do what the governor uh, should do, which is to deem the slate of electors for the candidate ahead by 20,000 votes, looking like it's Biden, as the correct one. And if the Republican-controlled state legislature wants to submit a competing slate of electors, well, by the time you get to January 6th and Congress needs to sort that out, the recount will be over, and it should be quite clear that the governor's slate has, if anything, been further confirmed by that date. Well, we had an election, it was back in 1876, when because of disputes over votes, legislatures chose electors and actually went against both the popular vote and what seemed like the electoral college count. That's how Rutherford B. Hayes was elected and for the entirety of his term had to live with being called his fraudulency. As recently as 1960, Hawaii submitted two slates of electors. So what could possibly happen now? So if you do have two slates of electors uh, submitted, opened by the vice president on January 6th in this joint session called for by the 12th Amendment, it it is up to Congress to resolve which slate or theory whether any uh, slate should be counted. Now, after the the Hayes-Tilden election saga, Congress passed a, a law called the Electoral Count Act that tries to specify really both process and substance, process and standards that Congress uses to evaluate. It specifies that if there's a real question over which slate to to accept, embrace, and count, that the two houses, meaning the House of Representatives and the Senate, they split, they debate separately, they come back together. What's notable is if they can't agree, and one can imagine a Democrat-majority House and a Republican-majority Senate at least potentially disagreeing, the Electoral Count Act gives the nod to the governor's slate. So it, that's that's the, the tiebreaker, the, the winner if the two houses can't agree. But I do think it's worth emphasizing that if what comes to them is a slate of electors sent by, let's say, the governor of Wisconsin that reflects a victory of 20,000 votes for Biden, that by the time it reaches Congress has actually been confirmed by a thorough statewide recount versus one submitted by the state legislature that's just at odds with what the people of the state have voted, I'm not sure it takes all the admittedly intricate weeds of the Electoral Count Act to resolve that. That seems like it should be easy for the Congress uh, as a whole to know which one to accept and which one to reject. We hear about evidence that mail-in voting brings fraud. There have been hearings on this with people such as Attorney General Barr testifying. There was also a Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity. What evidence did those bring? really none, or at least statistically negligible. The the Pence-Kobach Commission on on election fraud was dismantled. It was taken apart, in in part because it didn't seem to be on the path to finding uh, voter fraud of any note, in part because its massive data call to the various states for voter information was resisted by many states, regardless of whether they were red or blue uh, in, in, in the governorship or attorney general or secretary of state. Many of them resisted this massive data call by a federal entity like the commission. And even more recently, we've had the attorney general, William Barr, under oath before Congress, asked why he continued to echo and amplify President Trump's repeated escalating claims of voter fraud, election fraud, and what basis the attorney general had for doing so. And he basically admitted he had none. Uh, and so... This is, frankly, disinformation. It's, it's disinformation very much of the type that foreign actors spread with the goal of undermining how Americans see and feel about and trust their own democracy. But it's, it's not based in fact, and it doesn't make for actual legal arguments because of that. Well, what is the danger here in what has happened? Because both sides firmly believe that there have been shenanigans used against them and that the winner, whoever he is finally certified to be, 
was unfairly chosen. And we're not going to change their minds. We went through this in 2000. We went through this in 1960. But the suspicion and anger have increased greatly since then. It's very hard. It's very hard to have a a populace with large segments who have been told by political leaders at this point to distrust or even reject the legitimacy of an election result. And it can make governing hard because the aspects of, of leaders who are elected platforms uh, will be resisted by those who, who, who perhaps continue to view those leaders as illegitimate somehow. It can even, in its most extreme forms, lead to violence by those who take the, the notions of illegitimacy and act on them in, in criminal ways. And so wh- whatever one's views of policy, of politics, even of, of, of law, one would hope that, that there's a coming together. There's a belief that we need to all have a country that's governable and peaceful. And um, there's been too little of that rhetoric shared across the political spe- spectrum uh, lately. But I do hope that in the coming days, which really should bring clarity as to who won this presidential uh, election, um, those who have not contributed to, to reminding Americans of that will find their voices and they will come back and, and tell Americans that like or dislike the results of the election for the president, for the Senate, the House, wherever it might be, um, the results are what they are. They need to be accepted as such and accepted peacefully. And that we then need to find ways to govern our country as a single country. It does feel like the way this is playing out, this cycle of votes, how many more to be counted here, when will we know from there, has only contributed to those who want to spread notions that this is not a a set of election results to be trusted. Wouldn't it have been better, many are asking, I I think justifiably, if in fact there had been an end to the voting, some counting process, and ultimately a presentation of who had won rather than a sense of somebody's ahead and then behind, which is really fake, right? It's, it's, It's not sequential. All the votes are cast. It's just people look ahead because we get the results in tranches from within states. Uh, And so there is space for Congress, uh, working with the president, to um, have federal law play more of a role in standardizing uh, how elections, at least as you say, the federal elections run across the country. And I do think if Congress and the president were to work together on that, that the states would largely fall into line and have their local uh, and state and city elections, which are very important as well, uh, bring them into uh, consistency with those federal rules because it's just cheaper, easier, more efficient to administer things uh, in a single way. So that, as in many areas, that is a project for uh, the political branches of our federal government to take on. But I think that project feels more urgent given how this 2020 election cycle has played out. Joshua Geltzer is the founding executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, as well as visiting professor of law at Georgetown University. Joshua, I thank you for this time in trying to uh, disentwine the knots here in a very, very interesting election. Thank you. Thank you, Gil, for the chance to have this conversation. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. In the middle of this election battle, the COVID battle goes on and, in fact, is heated up. And there are signs that many Americans are suffering from virus burnout, struggling to pay their rent and mortgage, about to be hit by 
heating bills and with Christmas presents to buy, the upcoming inability to go to restaurants or have a social life or get together for Thanksgiving, it seems many are deciding they would rather take a chance with their lives and try and get back to work rather than listen to the scientists. So what is being said and how can we protect ourselves? Joining us again is Dr. Mel Herbert, an emergency room physician and the man behind MRAP. EMRAP, where emergency department doctors exchange information about what they're seeing. These are the first responders who put their lives on the line and have often lost those lives trying to keep us safe. Mel, good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's good to be back. Before we get into anything else, winter is coming in the Northern Hemisphere. What does that say about the coming course of this virus? How bad might this get? This, unfortunately, could get terribly bad. What we've learned in the last, you know, six, eight, nine months is that this is a virus that really likes it when we go inside. There's droplet spread, which are the bigger droplets when we're talking, when we're sneezing, but there probably is also an amount of aerosolized spread. That's the really, really tiny droplets that can sit in the air for hours and hours on end. So the modeling suggests, and our prior experience suggests, that there is a significant amount of infectivity that can occur from that. So that means when everybody goes back inside, we're probably going to see a significant spike like we did at the beginning of this. Worse in places where a lot of people live in apartment buildings. Worse in places where people use a lot of public transport. So places like New York, for example. Probably a little less so in uh, places like California, where we tend to drive our own cars, where we tend to live more in homes than we do in apartments. And we're already seeing a huge spike across the country in you know, places like Kansas and Wisconsin and um, just huge spikes that are occurring. Infectivity rates that I don't think we saw even when it was bad at the beginning, like in the population, up to you know, 20, 30, 40% of the people getting tested are positive. So the surge has already begun. In some places, it's well on the way. And there are other states and other regions that are going to have an enormous explosion of this as we get into late November December and January. So I have a, a selfish question, but it, it works for everybody out there. I hope they don't have to meet up with uh, an appointment like this, but I've got some upcoming surgery in January and I'll be in an ICU for maybe two days if everything goes well. ICU beds in America may be at a premium by then, not just for me, but for people with heart attacks, strokes, auto accidents, gunshot victims, and on and on. Yeah, there's a good chance, and I hope uh, everything goes well, but uh, there's a good chance that you won't have that surgery, frankly. If you look at the modeling coming out of Washington, it's the models that Washington State, it's the models that most of us use. We think it's probably the most accurate. They have a lot of places overcoming their ICU capacity uh, by January. Uh, I would say it's probably unlikely that you're going to get that ICU bed the way things are surging right now because we overwhelm the ICUs the most because patients stay in the hospital. If they're sick enough to go to the ICU, they're often there for weeks and weeks and sometimes months. So you fill up that bed capacity very quickly and you fill up the capacity of the intensivists to look after those patients. So the first thing that gets shut down is elective surgery. Um, And that's a real problem for a lot of people because the definition of elective is um, quite variable to people who really should be having that surgery. But uh, Gil, it might not be happening. Well, for the people who have COVID bad enough to end up in the ICU, how has their recovery been? Well, there's some good news there, but it's still bad. So at the beginning of this pandemic, if you went to the ICU and had to be intubated, it was looking like you had a 90% mortality rate. These are the first studies that were coming out of China and coming out of South Korea and coming out of Italy. It looked terrible. Even to the point where people were questioning, well, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. We should just be doing palliative care. 
Since then, the mortality rate has dropped substantially. So if we look in places like New York and other places in the US, that mortality rate is still high. You know, we're talking 30 or 40%, but that's way better than 80%. And it's because we're intubating less people and doing less damage that way. We've got some drugs that work like dexamethasone. We've got some smart intensivists now that have been talking to each other about how to ventilate and oxygenate patients. And all of this together makes it seem like we've got some things here that can reduce that mortality substantially. There's a couple of things on the horizon that could also work. So the monoclonal antibodies that the president got probably do work very well if given early in the disease. There's a couple of studies now where they've been used later in the disease and convalescent plasma. If you wait too long, probably too late doesn't work. But if you do it earlier enough, them, they might be really effective. I got to speak with some of the most senior people at the FDA, and they're very excited about some of the monoclonal antibody studies that should be coming out in the next few weeks to months. But again, it's a bit of a Goldilocks phenomenon. You don't want to give it to everybody, but if you start to get sick, and if it looks like you're going to the ICU, that might be the time where these therapies might have a real effect. I was listening on MRAP to Dr. Sarah Krager talk about intubation in the ER. I was impressed again that even though we think about COVID, oh, they must bring me in. If I get this really bad, I go into the ER, we all get treated the same. I was impressed by how individually emergency physicians have to be in their treatments to pull patients through this. And this means keeping up on everything that's going on and really kind of judging individually, if you have the time, what's best for each patient, even though it's all described as COVID. Yeah, this idea of the individualized patient care is uh, really important. And that's why you're seeing the mortality rates go down in places where they're not completely overwhelmed. So Sarah, who's a you know, brilliant intensivist, if she's got time to spend with you, a COVID-positive patient that's sick in the ICU, and she can change the ventilator and she can change some of the medications and the way she's ventilating you and putting you in that prone position with your belly, if she's got time to do that, she can really help you a lot. But if there are 50 people like you in her hospital and she's expected to try and look after all of those people, which happened during like the New York explosion and in, and in Italy and in Spain, you cannot give that individualized care. And that's why we're so worried about these giant explosions of patients is that it overwhelms the capacity to give the best care and the mortality rate will go up in those hospitals that are being overwhelmed. There's just not the capacity of the physicians to look after them. And, you know, every hospital might have an intensive care unit, but they only got a limited number of intensivists and uh, asking an ER doctor to go upstairs, and this is what happened in the prior surges, is fine. We're okay at looking after your ventilator, but you really need somebody who does that every single day. That's their job to really get the nuance there. So a big surge is a bad thing in terms of mortality for sick people. We can get you the ventilator. Everybody talks, oh, we got all these new ventilators. That's fine, but I need somebody expert to run that ventilator. The machine itself is just one tiny part of the story. We know male seniors are more likely to die from this. Is that just because of age? Do they present with this disease differently than younger people? Well, they certainly get a lot sicker. Um, the mortality rates in patients over the age of 80 are in the sort of 20% range. If you're under the age of 40, we're talking about 0.3%. and So huge uh, variation by age. Elderly patients tend to present to us sicker, so they'll get exposed and then a short time later, start to feel a bit short of breath, have the cough, have all the other symptoms that it can occur, and become symptomatic and hypoxic, not having enough oxygen, pretty quickly in general. Whereas so many of the young patients have very few or no symptoms. And that's why they you know, are out there and uh, this virus is surging us because, well, I'm okay, so I'm going to go do my normal things. But the problem is that you're spreading it to the people who could get really sick. 
And we also know that it's not just the elderly. There are other risk factors. So if you have cardiovascular disease, if you have high blood pressure, if you are obese, if you have kidney disease or liver disease or even asthma, things like that. And it turns out that there is a huge amount of the American population that has one or more of those risk factors. So it's not just being old, although that certainly is a very high risk factor. It's having some of these other what we call comorbid diseases, which are so prevalent in Western society. Obesity is an epidemic in and of itself, and that is a very high-risk group when you get infected with COVID. Okay, so let's get the vaccines, which it seems like we've been waiting for almost as long as we've been waiting for that you know, pony my parents promised me when I was four years old. The Russians have the Sputnik V vaccine. The Chinese have a whole bunch of them. We've got a whole bunch of them. The Israelis have some. The British have some. Are any of them close to being ready? We think so. Um, the problem with vaccine development, and this has gone faster than any time in human history, it's actually spectacularly, um, it's actually spectacular how quickly we've gotten to where we are, which is we are now in phase three trials, and some of these phase three trials might be coming to an end within the next month or so. And so this is where you give the vaccine to a lot of people, and you make sure first that it's safe. And you've heard a number of these trials were stopped because somebody got sick. And then you have to decide, was it they got sick because of the vaccine or because just by chance? Because if you've got 30,000 people in a study, people are going to get sick from random things just randomly. So it takes some time to do that. And then you have to work out whether it's effective. And the only way to work out whether it's effective or not is to give some people the vaccine and other people not the vaccine. But you also have to have a third part of that is there has to be actually virus out in the community spreading. So you can see, did the people who got the vaccine, you know, was it protective or not? So there's a lot of stuff that you have to do. That data is now being reviewed on some of those earliest vaccines here in the United States. So we might have some information in the next month or so. And the two things you need to look for when that data starts to come out is, first of all, is it safe? Um, did people have problems with it? Now, I'm not talking about, oh, my arm hurt for a day or two, but were there real problems with this down the road? And then how effective it is. And this is my biggest concern. People are saying, oh, once the vaccine gets here, we'll be fine. But it's pretty likely that this vaccine is going to be way less than 100% effective. A 100% effective vaccine is if I take it, then I'm not going to get the disease and I'm going to be fine. And maybe I have to take it every year, but I'm fine. But people are talking about, like Dr. Fauci, who's really a vaccine expert, that maybe we're going to get a vaccine that's 50% effective. It might be a little bit better than that. So that's why public health experts like Dr. Fauci are saying, don't expect when this vaccine comes out, one, that you're going to be able to get it because it's going to take a while to ramp this up and they're going to give it to healthcare workers and the most at risk first. But two, even if you get it, we still should probably for the next year be doing physical distancing and masks and have a vaccine, and then try and get the prevalence of this disease in the community to as low as possible so that we can get back to contact tracing and then try and eliminate it entirely. But when do we get a vaccine? We're going to talk about that next with Dr. Mel Herbert. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod 
to 500-500. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. We now have more for you of America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross, and we've been talking to emergency room physician Dr. Mel Herbert, who runs MRAP, E-M-R-A-P, where emergency room doctors and nurses and scientists share information on many things, including COVID. And it's time to talk about preventing this disease in the first place. There's four vaccines here in the United States that seem like they're close to being approved. Two of them, though, are these two messenger RNA vaccines, and these require being actually deep frozen right to the moment of injection. And I'm thinking even if they do work really well in terms of distributing them around the United States, that could be a problem. Yeah, it is actually a real problem. Um, If you have to have that vaccine cooled, and in this case, really cold, super cold, then you have to also not just develop the vaccine, but develop the infrastructure to get that out to every clinic, to every hospital, to every pharmacy, to then be able to thaw it and then to give it to the patient within a very short period of time. Those vaccines are really difficult to distribute widely. What you really want is a vaccine that can be reconstituted with a little bit of saline at room temperature, because then you can get it out to everybody on trucks very quickly. So Yeah, like you say, at least a couple of these vaccines are pretty complicated. They have to be cooled, and that makes the logistics part of things very difficult. One thing to create, you know, 300 million doses of uh, virus, but now I need 300 million ice chests and uh, trucks to drive them around and distribution centers to get them out. Uh, We are actually quite a number of months, maybe more than six months away from getting to that point. Okay, let's talk about the drugs. Where are we? The World Health Organization did a huge international study on remdesivir. It showed no real change in death rates for those who used it. But now the FDA has approved it for hospitalized patients, so I'm completely confused. You're the doctor. Are you confused? Um, a little bit. Well, here's what happened. So remdesivir is a, uh, is a drug that was used for Ebola, and it didn't work. And then somebody, as we did at the beginning of this outbreak, Tried, we threw the kitchen sink at this virus to try and find something that worked. So remdesivir, there's a few theoretical reasons why it might work. And then there was one big study. It was published in the New England Journal, and it showed that the patients that got remdesivir left the hospital about four days earlier than those that didn't. It did not affect mortality. It didn't reduce the chance of dying, but it got you out of the hospital quicker, and that's pretty good because we need those hospital beds for the next patient that comes in. The problem with that original study that we pointed out on our show is that during the randomization, The people who got the remdesivir, just by chance, weren't quite as sick as the people who didn't get it. And this happens in randomized trials. Sometimes, just by chance, they're not perfectly uh, representative. They're not exactly the same, the two groups, the one group that got it and the one group didn't. So that was a little bit concerning. Like, the difference between the remdesivir group and the placebo group might be because they were just a different group of patients. So what we actually need is a number of more randomized, well-done trials. We're not sure if it's working. It doesn't appear to hurt. Let's continue to use it until we get another trial that says definitively yes or no. And I think that's where we are. We are kind of in that limbo stage right now. One study says it works. One study says it doesn't work. All right. So we are now in the midst of this surge that's going on. This is expected to get worse over the next couple of months. And people, as I said when we first started to talk today, are sick of masks. I completely understand that, especially with the holidays coming up. 
what would you say to convince them of their importance? I would tell them that I get it. I'm sick of this thing. We're all sick of this. I would just like to go to the local restaurant and have a glass of wine and with my wife and not be worried about this thing. But this is actually the worst time so far. We are going into winter. This thing spreads very easily. Hospital capacity could get overwhelmed and you can help. And it's a simple thing. You can wash your hands, you can physically distance, and you can wear the mask. Those things alone, if we look at the modeling again from Washington, if we do those things and we really do them pretty religiously, like 95% of the time when we're out and about, and particularly when we're inside, you can significantly change that curve from the curve is going up and up and up and up and up and up. And if we do those things together, if we do those things together, we can significantly drop that down. That will mean that the number of patients going to the hospitals will be significantly less. That will mean that the intensivists and the emergency departments won't be quite so overwhelmed, so the care will be better. That will mean that the probability that somebody will die from this disease is significantly less. The estimates are 100 to 200,000 within the next few months if we do that. So if we think about what happened in the past, we sent our best and brightest and our youngest off to war to go and fight the Nazis. And many of those patients, many of those people didn't come home. All we're asking this generation to do is be really thorough about doing some really simple things. That mask can save lives. You, a layperson, can help save lives simply by being anal retentive, if I can say that, about wearing the mask. Help out the system. If you don't, the system could very well get overwhelmed. And that's not going to be good for anybody. It's not going to be good for the economy. It's not going to be good for the doctors, nurses. It's not going to be good for you. You're not going to be able to have your surgery if you break your arm. Are you going to be able to get into the emergency department? Do this simple thing. It's not politics. It's a simple public health measure. And you can be part of the solution. And by the way, you can totally use the phrase anal retentive as long as it doesn't confuse people about just where you wear the mask. <laughs> exactly. Dr. Mel Herbert is an emergency room physician and the man behind MRAP, E-M-R-A-P, where again, emergency department doctors exchange information about what they are seeing. And that's something that has been so incredibly useful in developing ways to keep people alive. Mel, thank you so much as always. Thanks for uh, letting me uh, talk to the people. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. In 2016, pollsters got the national contest right. They said Hillary Clinton would win the popular vote, and she did, well within the margin of error. But they plainly got the state races wrong, and that was important because that's how we actually pick a president. Pollsters said they'd learned some lessons, and this year they would do a lot better. Well, they did a lot worse, so much worse that you start to wonder if polls are even worth it. Margaret Sullivan is the media columnist for The Washington Post. Margaret, good to have you with us. Thank you very much, Gil. In 1936, the Literary Digest, then a decades-old and very popular magazine of the time, did a poll and announced Alf Landon would beat FDR in a landslide. It was exactly the other way around, and two years later, the Literary Digest was a defunct laughingstock. So who do you think is going to take the fall for this one? Well, I don't think it'll be quite that severe. Um, Obviously, a lot of eyes are on the places we turn to for sort of the amalgamation of the polls. Uh, 538.com, the New York Times with its needle, and other places like that. But I don't really think that they are the ones who we should be looking most seriously at. It's actually the, the polls themselves, not those who interpreted them, who were the most off. And in some cases, you know, 
they weren't terribly off, but in, but in the aggregate, they really um, gave us the impression that former Vice President Joe Biden was up by, a, you know, had a commanding lead and that there would be a, a landslide or there might be. And as you say, that has not come to pass. You know, I did a piece about Florida recently, which I called the hardest place to poll outside of Yemen. You you try to slice up there what's called the Hispanic vote, which politicians and news anchors talk about like that's a thing, even though you have older Cubans who hate Democrats, younger Cubans who don't, Venezuelans who do, Puerto Ricans who don't, but on the other hand are strong Catholics and are against abortion and gay marriage, not to mention among Cubans, black Cubans and white Cubans who often don't get along. And pollsters and news anchors don't seem to get any of this. That's right. We we want to, we seem to want, and I say we as the media writ large, we seem to want to paint this demographic group with a very broad brush. And as you say, it, it can't be done. I mean, there are a lot of subsets in the group we would like to call Latino or Hispanic. And it's really misleading to say that, you know, people who immigrated from Latin America, you know, whether recently or a long time ago, are the same as the white Cubans in Florida. They have very different mindsets. They have different political leanings. They like different things in politicians. They have different issues. And so it's a failure to say, oh, well, we think we know, uh, oh, gosh, Latinos should like Joe Biden. Well, in Miami-Dade, Florida, they didn't so much. And, you know, we do need to learn something from that. Your paper, The Washington Post, and I want to underline to everyone, you're the media columnist, you are not the polling unit, said that Wisconsin is going to be Biden by 17 points, which was 17 points off. Now, the thing about that that's interesting, not, you know, blaming the paper specifically, is that the Post poll is considered by many other pollsters as the ultimate poll. They talk to people for 30 to 60 minutes. They ask circle of friends questions that are supposed to ferret out the so-called shy Trump voter. It was still literary digest quality wrong. Is is polling just broken? Well, um, you know, that was off by a long shot, and it does stand out. And, uh, you know, I just read a a comment this morning from an internal, um, from our, basically our public relations people saying, you know, we're going to take a very serious look at what happened and and make whatever changes need to be made. But it's a cautionary tale, for sure, about the difficulty of polling these days, because it's not like the old days when you could call people up on their landlines and expect everybody to talk to you. There's a lot of people who don't want to talk. There's a lot of people who don't have a landline and who don't pick up their cell phones uh, when they see a strange number. Um, And I think polling has adjusted to that to some extent, but clearly not enough. Yeah, we have gated communities. We have phones with caller IDs. I don't know that number. Let them leave a message, and I'll see if it's somebody I really want to talk to. It's easy to avoid pollsters. It really is. And that's one of the issues. And, you know, pollsters have found ways to get around that. It's interesting to me that uh, Ann Seltzer did such an accurate poll in Iowa this year. And when it came out, which was uh, favoring uh, President Trump, everyone sort of poo-pooed it and said, oh, you know, she must have lost her, her. She must be off her game now because she has a very good reputation. Well, it turned out to be right. So maybe there are some lessons there as well, Gil. 
Yeah, and the way pollsters pick people may be a problem, too. Look, um, I'm a a white-collar worker. The phone rings. Do you have a half hour to talk? Well, yes, I do. In fact, I was just planning to write an op-ed piece myself. I'm a (laughs) blue-collar worker. I'm working two part-time jobs with with the COVID surge. I'm driving an Uber. I don't have – the kids are running around. I don't have time to talk to some busybody on the phone for an hour. I think – Probably there's a very kind of self-selecting group here that just doesn't have time for this. Right. And I think the other thing that we should probably acknowledge if we haven't is that there are a lot of Trump supporters who don't like the media or, you know, official official people like pollsters. And I don't suggest that they that they went out of their way to lie uh, to pollsters. But I do think that they tend to say, nope, I'm, I'm not interested in that. Um, I'll stick with my trusted sources, which may be on social media or maybe a different news organization, but they certainly aren't uh, somebody from uh, a, a polling company, which they may well see as just another part of an institution that they don't like and don't trust. You know, there was an interesting paper. Well, interesting if if you're you know a geek like me uh, that was written a quarter of a century ago with the title "Pluralistic Ignorance and the Perpetuation of Social Norms by Unwitting Actors," which wasn't about polling. It was about how people like to be liked by people they talk to. That study was about college kids saying they like to drink even if they don't. Boys and girls in elementary school mm-hmm. saying things about the opposite sex because they thought that's what the people around them want to hear. And there may be signs here that people do that with pollsters. I know people on the phone may think lesser of me for giving one answer, maybe not just about Trump, maybe about Bernie Sanders as well. If Sanders had got the Democratic nomination, I'll tell them what they want to hear. We'll have a pleasant conversation and and they'll like me. That's right. I mean, it's almost a form of or it kind of uh, correlates in a little uh, way with with peer pressure. You know, it's like, oh, is this what you want to hear? Well, I guess I'll tell you. And I also know, just as anecdotal, but I know people who told their young millennial daughter, yes, you know, under pressure from you and your siblings, we're going to vote for Biden in Pennsylvania. And then they went to the polls, voted for Trump as they had in 2016 and came back and, you know, well, we're a little bit chagrined, but said, yeah, that's that's what we did. So people were also changing their minds. And maybe in the end, they just said, uh, you know, uh, let's give this another shot like I did four years ago. Quick final thing. The thing is, if polling is done right, it can still be important. And for one thing, it can tell politicians stuck in Washington what people back home actually care about. That's right. And I think the the takeaway here is that polling should continue. I don't think we want to shut it down and it won't be shut down. But we need to look at it differently. It's one interesting factor in the way we should see politics, national politics, and even local politics. It should not be the be-all and end-all, which I'm afraid, perhaps in our anxiety about the outcome, we made it. Margaret Sullivan is the media columnist for The Washington Post. Margaret, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much, Gil. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? 
and the Coast Guard. We think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We had no shortage of voters this year. Records were broken for both Republican and Democratic voters. And yet, millions of Americans eligible to vote still do not do the one thing that separates us from a dictatorship. That despite the fact that with polling places, early voting, mail-in ballots, and absentee ballots, it's never been easier to vote. And, of course, it's the one thing that all sides might agree on has never been more important. Still, people don't vote. But there are others. CBS Sunday Morning contributor Faith Saley tells us about one such voter who put a lot of younger people to shame. And in her case, that pretty much takes in everyone. This is my friend Ruth Rosner. We meet here at this Manhattan bakery every weekend. I love their pastries. I love their soup. Everything. A lifelong New Yorker. Vote! Ruth is 104 years old. Why do you think you've lived so long? Just bad luck. <laughs> she has a lot to say, especially about politics. This is the most important thing I could do. But over the past week, people have had a lot to say about her. Do I want to vote? I want to vote more than anything. My family had the honor of escorting her to vote. I posted to social media, and the story of Ruth to the booth blew up. What's it like to be a viral star? It's very good. <laughs> I get people taking pictures of me. Millions of people know who Ruth is. Oh, this is my dad holding me. Ruth was born in 1916, four years before women even had the right to vote. This is my mother, who was one of the first women elected to the New York City Council. Clearly, civic duty runs in her blood. Do you remember your first vote? I think it was the second time that FDR ran. Ruth cast her first ballot in 1936. In all, she's voted for president 22 times. Hands down, without exception, and I'm talking about the First World War, the Second World War, and every other election before or since, this is it. Ruth, when we walked over for you to cast your vote, I could not keep up with you. Well, I was just, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Not even COVID could keep her home, which says a lot since her own dad died in the 1918 flu pandemic. You could have thought, you know what, I'll skip this election. Jamais. No, never. If you skip this one, you're going to deserve what you get. After casting her vote and exiting to cheers, Ruth sat down on her walker to cry. It really seemed to mean something. God bless America. 
my home, sweet home. Yes, vote. CBS Sunday Morning contributor Faith Saley and a very inspiring friend. You've been listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.